This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. The pilot then radioed to the tower requesting permission to take off. He hears back that there's a major tropical storm in Guam and that we would be grounded in the Maldives for six hours. And at this point, I started shaking. If we touched down with Seleznev anywhere that wasn't part of the U.S., the Russians would put a lot of pressure on that country to keep him there and not let him leave. So we had to risk it. Our team made the call, get the plane in the air now. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. We all know the Secret Service as the agency that protects the president and other top U.S. officials. But it actually began as an arm of the Treasury Department, and to this day, its mission also includes investigating fraud and other financial crimes. More recently, the Secret Service has been focusing on hacking cases. Starting in 2004, the agency spent years tracking the movements of one particular hacker, Roman Seleznev, the son of a prominent Russian family and also one of the most notorious cyber criminals in the world. Seleznev was very careful to travel only to places he thought were out of the reach of U.S. law enforcement. But in 2014 the agency got an anonymous tip. Seleznev would be traveling soon to the Maldives. For this episode, we interviewed one of the Secret Service agents who orchestrated the operation to nab Seleznev. We're calling him Daniel Murphy. For his own security, he prefers to remain anonymous. So, we transcribed the interview and gave it to the actor John Conley. While it's Murphy's story, it's Conley's voice you'll be hearing. Around 2004, the agency caught wind of a hacker who went by the name of Track 2. The alias refers to that magnetic strip on the back of credit cards. And if you look closely on the strip, there's a couple of different tracks. And on Track 2, that's where all the hackers pay attention because that's where all the usable data is. That's the good stuff. So that's why this particular hacker called himself Track 2 because he was the king of all the good stuff. So Track 2 was very, very good at what he did. He was fast-rising star in an underground forum at the time called Carter Planet. His particular expertise was hacking into financial systems, stealing credit cards and other personal data, and selling all that to buyers on the dark web. And Track 2 was really good at eluding authorities for years. But... Over time, eventually, all criminals slip up. And in the case of Track 2, his transactional history and intrusion history over the years began to paint a clearer picture of who this guy was. Now, as a law enforcement agency dealing with international criminals, Secret Service has a bunch of partners all over the world. And in the case of Track 2, it was actually our international partners that really helped us zero in on him. We have a bunch of ways to do that. IP tracing, 
other techniques. I, I don't really want to go into it, but eventually we came up with a name. Roman Selesnev. He was a Russian citizen whose father, Valery Selesnev, was an important member of the Russian Duma and a close ally of Vladimir Putin. We were all kind of floored when we got this information. And I realized at this point, this was going to be a really tough case to crack. By then, I had been in the Secret Service for more than a decade. Uh, I don't come from a law enforcement family. When I was in college, the expectation people had was that I would become a lawyer. But I knew from a really young age that wasn't going to be my path. I was always interested in law enforcement. Uh, I read a lot about big criminal cases, watched a lot of those movies, you know, uh, in the line of fire where Clint Eastwood plays a Secret Service agent. I really liked that, you know, he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, but also that he was always looking sharp. And so I always had it in the back of my mind that I would somehow find my way into federal law enforcement. Uh, by the way, that's why I never used any illegal drug my entire life. I, I wanted to make sure that I had a clean slate. So I was already in federal law enforcement when I applied to the Secret Service, but I was still a lot younger than other folks. The Secret Service tends to look for people with different kinds of experiences. So when I was in the academy, I was with people from law enforcement, but also other backgrounds. Some people came from psychology. Uh, one guy had a PhD in math. Most people are recruited into the Secret Service when they're, uh, you know, around 30. And, you know, when people think about the Secret Service, they right away think about guys with earpieces, the guys trained to take a bullet for the president. And that's definitely an aspect of the protective side. But that's only one part of what the agency does. The other part is investigative. And uh, in the agency's early years, a lot of the investigations focused on counterfeit currency cases. Now it's focused more on uh, cyber crimes involving financial fraud. Anyway, after making it through the academy, I had a year of on-the-job training with a mentor. And in the early years, I was mainly working on general fraud investigations and protective details. But eventually I started getting larger and larger cases to work on. Uh, going after track two was definitely the biggest one. The first step toward going after Selesnev was to have him formally charged in court. The charges were staggering. After about a decade of tracking him, we were able to show that he had stolen more than $200 million. We actually estimated the damages he inflicted on financial institutions and small businesses to be a lot higher, closer to half a billion dollars. So this was the biggest cybercrime case in the history of the service by far. So by 2013, he was charged in three federal districts, Washington State, Nevada, and Georgia. But really, that was the easy part. Now we had to figure out how to bring him in. Of course, Russia and the United States don't have an extradition treaty, so getting Russia to help was a non-starter. But we could see that Selesnev was buying a lot of property, 
and making other high-profile purchases. He had a home and an apartment complex in Bali in Indonesia, and he was splurging on things like Lamborghinis and helicopters. So Lesnev wasn't staying put in Russia. He was traveling a lot to visit those properties. And when he was abroad, he would use his Russian passport, so he didn't go under any assumed names. The problem was that he was very savvy about which countries to visit. He would never go to a country that had what we call an MLAT with the United States. That's a a mutual legal assistance treaty. It's basically the kind of agreement that would allow us to put our hands on him there. So we knew that if we wanted to catch him, we would have to go outside the traditional channels. That meant talking to confidential sources and working our back channels with law enforcement and other countries to try to cut a deal. So our first thought was, let's see what we can work out with the Indonesians. In the spring of 2013, uh, late spring, we used our contacts at the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency to set up a meeting with the BNN. That's the Indonesian version of the National Drug Police. We traveled to Jakarta and met with General Goris Mir. We knew it was going to be a big ask, so we spent a lot of time Uh, You know, was just trying to to build up a relationship. I remember going to a dinner and cocktails with the general and sharing information on what we knew about Seleznev. He was interested. Problem was he couldn't connect Seleznev to the drug trade, and we weren't going to make up a story. Everything had to be by the book. So after a few days, it looked like we weren't going to be able to convince General Muir to assist us. But then... General Mir's mother died, and we all made the decision that we would extend our trip in order to go to the funeral and offer our condolences. And I think he really appreciated the gesture, and I say that because later we got word that the BNN would be willing to help us apprehend Seleznev. They had this idea of giving him a tranquilizer and then handing him over to us next time he flew to Bali. And we told him... Uh, look, we totally appreciate the gesture, but that's not going to work. You know, again, we had to do it by the book. The next step was to go to the U.S. Embassy in Indonesia and convince the ambassador to buy in on the operation. He was the guy who'd be dealing with the political fallout if we took Seleznev into custody, so we had to convince him it was worth the hassle. We laid it all out, and after some negotiating, he okayed the plan. So, now we had the BNN and Ambassador Blake on board. So the next thing was to get a plane. The U.S. military has planes all over the world, but we couldn't use any of those assets. This was a Secret Service operation. And we could only use our own people and our own planes. So, we needed to find a plane that we could lease that's capable of flying nonstop from Indonesia to Guam, because Guam's the closest U.S. territory to Indonesia took us weeks to find the right plane, but finally we did. And, uh, man, it was uh, expensive. It was going to cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars, which, uh, believe it or not, made this the most expensive operation of its kind in the history of the Secret Service. But eventually we got the deal done. Trap was set. All we had to do was wait for Seleznev to return to Bali. But then, a few weeks later, everything fell apart. You're listening to I Spy. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. Before the break, the Secret Service officer we're calling Daniel Murphy coordinated a team to travel to Indonesia to catch the cyber criminal Roman Seleznev. But the trap he set for Seleznev fell apart. Let's get back to the story. The voice you're hearing belongs to the actor John Conley. So these kind of operations are totally influenced by political realities. And, you know, at some point, the U.S. ambassador decided that Russia would flip out over this kind of thing and that the fallout would be really bad. So he basically killed the operation. And we had to go back to the drawing board. Took another year before we had an opportunity to catch Seleznev. But I'll never forget that date, June 30th, 2014. That was the day we got an anonymous tip that Seleznev was traveling to the Maldives. So the Maldives is basically like Indonesia, not an MLAT country, but just like with Indonesia, we had a contact on the ground there. One of the State Department's agents based in Thailand had made a a close connection with the national police, so we got really lucky here. The guy had been involved in a program that helped train the police force and was willing to make an introduction. And pretty quickly, the head of the police in the Maldives was willing to work with us. He just had one condition, any plan for intercepting Seleznev in the Maldives would have to be approved by their president. So our intelligence told us that Seleznev was planning to leave the Maldives in just six days on July 5th. So we had to kind of hold our breath to see if the president of the Maldives would sign off in time, uh, which was incredibly stressful. But again, we lucked out. After a few hours, we heard back from the chief of police. Operation was a go still had a bunch of other things that needed to fall into place, and we were short on time. But basically, we were running up against July 4th. Once the holiday starts, it becomes a lot harder to reach U.S. officials all the way up the chain of command. And I I mean all the way up. The mission had to be signed off on by Julia Pearson, who was the head of the Secret Service, Attorney General Eric Holder, and then uh, Jed Johnson, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time. That's, That's how high up it went. Okay, so we got that done, and then there was the logistics of getting Seleznev up on the plane. And again, it's just a mad dash. Fortunately, we were able to get the same plane that we had negotiated to lease the year before for Indonesia. It was a Gulfstream, had the capacity to make the 10-hour flight. So the stars were all aligned. We had the Gulfstream on the ground in the Maldives with a full crew all in time. I think the tab for the operation was now up to $250,000, but remember... We had been following track two for close to 10 years by then. And at this point, it was all coming down to this one holiday weekend. So Julia Pearson, the then head of the Secret Service, signed off on the expense. And now we had to get eyes on Seleznev. We were able to fly in one of our agents from Hawaii and another from Bangkok. And they made it to the Maldives on July 4th. This was one day before Seleznev was set to leave the country. Uh, Maldives is a set of islands. So Seleznev actually had to travel by seaplane back to Valencia International Airport. That's where he would then board a flight back to Russia. So here's the plan. We're going to pull Seleznev out of line as he went through customs and whisk him onto the Gulf Stream and then get him to Guam. It was all about speed, how quickly we could pull it off. So remember, Seleznev's father is one of the most powerful men in Russia. And if word got back to him what was happening, 
the whole operation could be affected. And there were all these other variables that we had to take into account. Would Seleznev put up any resistance? Would he have his own security detail? You know, we had no idea. So the morning of July 5th arrived, and we had one of our agents stationed at the airport to get eyes on Seleznev when he arrived on the seaplane. The other agent was waiting at the airport. Both of these guys were unarmed. We set up a virtual command post in Washington for all the senior officers who were scattered, because remember, this is over holiday weekend. This was all before Zoom. So we were basically listening to a play-by-play over a secured conference call. And after waiting for what seemed like forever, we got our first message back from our seaport operative. He had eyes on Seleznev. He had landed by seaplane, was with his girlfriend and their young daughter. They seemed completely unaware that anything was going on, which was a big relief. We were worried about bodyguards or, you know, some kind of entourage, but that wasn't the case. The agent in the port moved his position and got on a shuttle bus with Seleznev from the port to the airport. So we're on the secure conference call and we're all listening to the agent. He has a satellite phone with him on the bus and he's whispering to us. We can barely hear him, but he is able to signal to the other agent that they're on their way to the airport and that everything is a go. Seleznev gets off the bus and goes to the check-in counter. And at that point, our operative on the ground points him out to the police and they approach him and they ask him, are you Roman Seleznev? And he says, yes. They tell him they have an issue with his passport and that he's needed for extra screening. At this moment, we don't really know what's going to (laughs) happen. We're just waiting on the call, very nervous, lots of stress. And Seleznev basically complies. He follows the customs police into a back room, and once he's secure in the back room, he's then told what's really happening, that he's wanted in the United States, and that he was now going to be in U.S. custody. I I need to make a distinction here. He was never told he was under arrest. We didn't have the authority to do that. Uh... They just told him he was in custody. Now, clearly, once he was in our custody, he wasn't going anywhere, but technically he was not under arrest. So, while this is all happening, Seleznev's daughter and girlfriend are still hanging out in the check-in area wondering what's going on. So, at any time, his girlfriend could start making phone calls, you know, setting off alarms in Russia and potentially jeopardizing the whole operation. We knew we had to move quickly. We had planned for it to be no more than 30 minutes from the time Seleznev was led to that back room to the time we had wheels up on the Gulf Stream. Everything was going according to schedule. Seleznev was led to the tarmac and onto the Gulf Stream, still no problems. The pilot then radioed to the tower, requesting permission to take off. He hears back that there's a major tropical storm in Guam and that we would be grounded in the Maldives for six hours. Six hours. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. And that's when we suddenly thought the whole operation might collapse. 
Now, all of this information is being relayed to the command team listening in on the conference line. And at this point, I, I started shaking. Landing in another country, that's just not something we wanted to do. If we touched down with Selesnev anywhere that wasn't part of the U.S., the Russians would put a lot of pressure on that country to keep him there and not let him leave. And that could easily become an international incident. But basically, we were running out of options. It was going to be too dangerous to stay on the ground in the Maldives. So we had to risk it. Our team made the call. Get the plane in the air now. Pilot took off, and we held our breath. It had been 30 minutes since Selesnev was intercepted. So we accomplished the goal of getting out of the Maldives. We just had to address each hurdle one at a time. A few hours into the flight, we heard back from the pilot. A total miracle had happened. The storm that was going to ground us had shifted paths. The Gulf Stream could continue directly to Guam. I can't even tell you how relieved I was. The next few things happened very quickly. Um, Selesnev was met in Guam by U.S. law enforcement. He was quickly put before a federal judge. After that, he was transported to the U.S., where he faced charges in Washington State. Once the Russians found out what had happened, a total firestorm erupted. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, denounced the Maldives. He issued a travel warning to all Russians traveling abroad not to go anywhere within the reach of U.S. law enforcement. The Russians were calling this a kidnapping. Got just a little bit of coverage in the U.S., but it was big news in Moscow. Eventually, Roman Selesnev was found guilty on 38 counts in Washington state and was sentenced to 27 years in prison. That's the longest sentence to date for any cyber criminal. At first, Selesnev's father did everything he could to try and free his son. We actually learned sometime later of a plot to have Roman escape from prison. So afterwards, he was moved to a more secure facility. And as for the president of the Maldives, to this day, he publicly denies knowing anything about the mission. It's kind of ironic how this all went down and how treaties work, because if the United States had a formal extradition agreement with the Maldives, it would have taken months of negotiations to get Selesnev to the United States. And in that time, there's any number of things that could have derailed his capture. But because we were, um, you know, painting outside the line, let's call it, we were able to improvise and move a lot more quickly. There's so many things that lined up and just seemed to go right during this operation. In the aftermath, there were definitely people who questioned whether nabbing Selesnev the way we did might backfire. Would Russia retaliate against Americans in some way? I can say that the threat of retaliation was never a factor for us when we planned the mission. We had been trying to get Selesnev for a decade, and so when the opportunity presented itself, we, we weren't going to let it slip away just because we were worried about some hypothetical question. You know, if you let those thoughts get in your head, you're never going to go after Russian criminals. If Russia retaliates sometime down the road, you're just going to have to deal with it at the time. 
As for the world of cyber criminals, I can tell you unequivocally that catching and convicting Track 2, a.k.a. Roman Selesnev, made a huge impact. It was all over the dark web, sent a powerful message that nobody's safe from the long arm of U.S. law enforcement. Selesnev had built up this reputation as a successful cyber criminal over many years. Capturing him left a dent in that world. It totally slowed down the entire global black market for identity theft. I will say that I don't really view the operation as a template for future apprehensions. Uh, the circumstances were, were very unique. And as far as I know, the Secret Service has never tried doing anything of this scale since then. I left the Secret Service shortly after the operation. I just kind of felt like this was going to be the pinnacle of my career, and now it would be up to someone else to take the lead. While the public will never know how much I personally worked to bring Selesnev to justice, I did get a lot of congratulations from within the agency and from Jed Johnson himself. And that felt great. That's the story of the former Secret Service agent we're calling Daniel Murphy. For his protection, we transcribed our interview with him and gave it to the actor John Conley. It was Conley's voice you heard on the episode. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for podcast is Dan Efron. Our team includes Rob Sachs, Laura Rossbrow Tellum, Rosie Julin, and Claudia Tatey. Our show now has a newsletter, and it's absolutely free. It includes beautiful illustrations that the artist Guy Shield makes for iSpy, photographs from some of the missions described on the podcast, and other bonus content you won't find anywhere else. To sign up, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter. That's foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in smart news and analysis from around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 15% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code iSpy at checkout. Next week on the show, television producer Joe Weisberg describes his short time in the CIA and how he came to believe that espionage causes more harm than good. One of the things I think I learned from the CIA was that you have to be careful not to automatically believe what people are saying. Not because people are lying or misleading on purpose, but because there's a very powerful tendency to want to believe in your own work and to be think it is valuable and think it is important. And so if you work in intelligence, you're very likely an intelligence booster. That's next week on iSpy. I'm Margot Martindale. <laughs>